Now, I want you to hear me for a moment. I want you to look at me for just a second. So if you can just grab my heart for just a moment. I'm hoping this sermon will help you understand just how imperative, how critical it is that we learn to be full of gratitude, that we learn to let that gratitude express itself in blessing God, that that blessing God takes the form of giving praise to Him. It is how you wage battle on pride. If you hate the pride that's in your heart, I'm going to show you how you deal with it. It's through learning to bless the Lord. And so I want to encourage you to learn this with me. So let's open up to Psalm 34. Let's really begin to understand what this really means to bless the Lord and be a people of God that does indeed say we know how to have praise on our lips continuously. Psalm 34, we're going to work through the first nine or so verses and then we're going to capture the rest of it because I don't have the time today to go through all of it. But I'm going to capture the rest of it in point number three, and I'm going to teach you how the Jewish people taught their own people to bless the Lord. And I'm looking forward to being able to teach you that. You know, if you've been to Washington, D.C., it's likely that you've been in the Washington Monument. I think it's closed right now for repairs. But it's the tallest building in D.C. It stands at over 554 feet. And the construction of this, in your mind, you just picture this obelisk, this Washington Monument. And it was completed in 1884, and it, was, it had a capstone made out of, at that time, extremely rare metal called aluminum. It had a capstone that was set on it eight years earlier in 1776 or 1876. Now there are four sides to that capstone. Each of those face each direction of the compass, north, south, east, and west. And on the east side of this capstone are inscribed the words in Latin, Laus Deo, which means praise be to God. That's at the top of that monument. It's a powerful reminder to our nation that God is worthy of all praise. So you open up Psalm 34 and you begin to read with me and it hits you right out of the gates. David is writing and he writes, I will bless the Lord at all times. His praise shall continually be in my mouth. Now this is a song. This is a worship psalm. That's a song. That's what the psalms were. These were liturgical very vertically driven, very real life, sometimes messy lyrics. This is how Israel learned to worship. And so it answers the question, and we're going to answer three of them. And the first one is this. When should we be full of gratitude to God? When should we be full of gratitude to God? Now the answer is immediate. Bless the Lord at all times. That's incredibly exciting. But come on, listen, it is impossible sounding. I mean, let that sink in a little bit. Let it resonate with you. Think of your worst days and your best days. Bless the Lord both of those days. Good times, difficult times, bless the Lord. Well, you might immediately begin thinking, well, that's not a big deal. I do it all the time. So let's understand what bless the Lord means. To bless the Lord, the word bless, it means to award it means to honor. It means to show gratitude to God. 
Now, let that get in there, all right? Hold that in your mind because you see this word constantly in the Bible. Award, show gratitude to God, give honor to God, but there's a deeper meaning, and this is where it gets really exciting. There's a deeper meaning to the word bless. That's a verb, bless the Lord, right? We know that. That's action. That's a verb, but it's related or it comes out of the noun, which is very similar. It means, listen to this, knee. You know, right here, most of us have two of them. It's related to the word knee. Now, why is that? Why is bless related to the word knee? Why did the verb come out of the noun for knee? To bless the Lord is to be filled with such a sense of God's greatness and God's goodness that it makes us willing to take a knee before him. It makes us willing to offer him all of our lives. That's what it means to bless the Lord. You put yourself in a position to where you yield all of yourself to God. Now it's not so easy. You have a really bad day, and now you put yourself in a position, you take the knee, whether it's figuratively or literally, and you yield all of your life to God. That's what it means to bless the Lord. And it's entirely, it's absolutely, this is, this is really the crux, or at least a major point in this sermon, it's absolutely opposed to any pride that lives in your heart. If there's any pride in you and if there's any pride in me, it will refuse to do this. It will be uncomfortable to recognize that we owe all to God, that we willingly, gladly bestow favor on Him and yield everything in us to God. You see, blessing the Lord, learning to bless the Lord is how you wage war on the pride in your heart. Now, I want you to recall King Hezekiah. He's one of my favorite kings of the Old Testament. He was a king of Judah, and Babylon came down, and before Babylon even came down and threatened them, and God uh, miraculously moved and destroyed 186,000 of their soldiers, the Babylonian soldiers, before all that happened... Hezekiah got sick. He got to the point where he was dying. He actually had an infection from a boil. And they couldn't get it to heal. And they knew he was dying, and he cried out to the Lord. But the Bible says, Hezekiah, after God healed him, now listen to this, God healed him, and the Bible says, but Hezekiah did not make return according to the benefit done to him, for his heart was proud. Therefore wrath came upon him in Judah and Jerusalem. He did not make return. That means he did not bless God. He did not favor. He did not pour favor on God. He did not bestow adoration to God. Why? Because his heart was proud. Do you see what I'm saying? That pride battles against blessing God. And blessing God wages war on the prideful heart. If you want to have less pride in your heart, then what the Bible would offer to you and what I would offer to you is that let's learn to bless the Lord at all times. See, gratitude is a grace word. Gratis in Latin actually means grace. 
which is grace, is the realization that any good thing that God gives to us or does for us, it's undeserved. Now, you got that, right? Let's really get this down in our minds for a second. Grace means, well, you could throw the pop phrase on it, unmerited favor, but it's not always helpful. It means that every good thing done to us, every good thing that we experience or we receive, we did not deserve it. See, until you understand your position before God, until you understand how undeserving we are and how pure and sinless he is, you really don't make much of grace. But when you do begin to understand that, when the gospel begins to unleash itself, and it shows you and it shows me what a sinner we are, and yet how great God's loving kindness is, what it does is it springs from our hearts a glad adoration for him, an affection that says, I want to give God all my praise. But I want to reiterate it. If any of us has a gratitude problem, it reveals you've got a pride problem. Now, I would write that down if I were you, because I think that's actually incredibly important that we learn to wage war. Let's memorize it. If you're not going to write it, it's super easy. If you have a gratitude problem... It's revealing that you've got a pride problem. This is as true for children with their parents when they just sort of expect mom and dad to give them everything they want. And when mom and dad do give them good things, they don't really even hardly say thank you until you say something to them. It's as true for children that have a pride issue as it is for us when we don't give God our blessings at all times. And it should be true of us, verse 1, look what David wrote, that his praise shall continually be in our mouths. He see, he, he's so good. Do you remember how I keep telling you that the Bible, the Scripture, interprets Scripture? I would imagine, I probably, I, I would be really glad to be wrong on this, but I would, be imagine, I would imagine that if I asked you to define praise, I think a lot of us would struggle with that. So the Bible will actually teach you how to define it. Look at the very next verse because David defines it. My soul makes its boast in the Lord. Now you've got literally the definition of the word praise. It means to boast. It means to brag. It means to make God the center of the show. So my soul makes its boast in the Lord. Let the humble hear and be glad. Boast of God all the time. This is how you bless. Not just when life seemingly is going the way we want. In fact, David, now he's going to give you a little example. He's going to give me an example. Look at verse 4. This is David that says, Bless the Lord at all times. Let his praise be on your lips. Boast in him. Well, let me give you an example. He does it in verse 4. I sought the Lord, and he answered me. And he delivered me from all my fears. This is why I'm boasting. This is why I'm praising Israel. This is why David's writing this. This is how I'm learning to bless the Lord at all times. This is what it means that praise is continually on my lips. Because God delivered me. Now he's going to give us a lot of examples of this from verse 10 on. He's going to give a lot of reasons why we bless the Lord. A lot of reasons why we boast in him. But verse 4, he gives you a little anticipatory preview of what he's about to teach. So when God blesses, we boast. When God delivers, we boast. When God restores, we boast about him. That is praise. So Christian, I want to tell you something. And this is, by the way, something that I've learned personally 
here in this church. I didn't learn it until I came to this church. There's times, you know, I usually sit in the back during the worship. Really, the reason I do that is I'm focusing and praying, and sometimes I'm praying for some of you because I know you're going through hard times. I'm singing, I'm working on my own soul. I really don't like it. There, years ago, I used to like this because I have pride in my heart, too. I used to like coming into the sanctuary, and all the eyes would look at me, and I'd see people whispering, that's the pastor. I don't like that anymore. That's really become distasteful for me. So a lot of times why I'm not up front is because I don't really want you to be watching me. I want you to be focusing on God. I know, I know pastors, very good friends of mine, would say, no, you need to be up front. You need to be modeling. You need to be the example. I can't argue with them. I just personally don't really like your eyes on me. I want them on God. Honestly, I don't even like preaching in front of you. I would rather be in your living room teaching you everything I'm learning. I don't like to be the center. I used to. Maybe I'm growing up. Who knows? Maybe the gospel's doing its job. But your praise, and I learned this here, when I'm in the back and I see some of you with your hands up, some, some both of your hands up, sometimes the worship team with their hands up, and I see sometimes your heads down and I can see wiping tears. You know what that does for me? I'm going to tell you what it does for me. It pulls me into praise. Your praise impacts me. When some of you get the opportunity and you testify of what God is doing and you're testifying in front of our church or in our life group or with me personally, what it does in me is it pulls my testifying to the surface. I all of a sudden begin seeing more clearly what God is doing in my life so that I can bless him, that I can get on my knees before him, give him all of that I am, and re return boasting and praise to him. That's the power of your praise. And this is exactly what David begins to do. He begins to bring in no longer the individual praise, he brings in the community praise. I want to show you what he does. Verse 3, magnify the Lord with me and let us exalt his name together. You see, praise isn't meant to be bottled up just for yourself. Praise is meant to be shared. It's meant to be communicated. Magnify, what's a strange name? And we don't use it too often, yet we're kind of familiar with it. But here's what it means. It means to make great. Now, you don't actually make God great when you magnify his name. It's not like God's kind of cool, and then all of a sudden you magnify him, and he is like all full of superlatives now. You don't do that. I don't have that power. Nobody does that. God is already great. He is infinitely perfect. What you do is you make his name great among his people, and you make his name great among the world when you lift him up. That's the power of our praise. Listen, when you come to church, praise, bless. When you have an opportunity to testify of our God, take the opportunity. You lift up his name. You make his name great so that people could be amazed at God through what he's doing in your life. And the result, by the way, is very personal. Look at verse 5. Those who look to him are radiant and their faces shall never be ashamed. Does anybody have a resting ornery face sometimes you can't help that listen you know if, if somebody has one of those 
don't be too quick to jump on them. Number one, you don't know what's going on in their life. And secondly, sometimes when we're concentrating, we kind of look a little angry. That's not always true that something bad is going on in our hearts. However, look at verse 5. When you begin to praise, when you begin to bless God, and you're in the assembly of God's people, your face will become radiant. That doesn't mean you've got a joker-sized smile on your jaw. It just means that there's all of a sudden confidence in you. There is hope in your face, and you will not be, the psalmist says, ever ashamed. It means that you're never going to lose your confidence in him you can you can put your confidence in God why because you're learning to bless him you're taking a knee you're yielding all to him you're boasting and praising his name it's continuously on your lips and you're doing it with your brothers and sisters you haven't isolated yourself you're not a lone Christian they cannot bless God they cannot be radiant those who say I don't need to go to church I got one guy that tells me I could just go to a lake and worship God. That's my church. Really? That's going to be really interesting how that works out for you as you grow in Christ. It's not going to happen. You grow in Christ when you praise God among his people. And his people encourage you with their praise and you encourage them by your praise. Your face will be radiant. You will not lose your confidence in him. Now, God might be doing, doing something in you right now, and I'm going to pause just briefly before we get to point two. Is he evoking in you a determination? You know what? I'm going to learn to bless my God at all times. And I'm going to learn how to have praise on my lips continuously. And I'm going to learn how to boast of my God. And I'm going to learn to be most comfortable on my knees, giving everything to him. You will not learn to do that through just grin, grim determination. You're not going to be able to buckle down and, and just knuckle it in and say, you know what, I'm going to tomorrow, starting tomorrow, I'm going to be a more blessing-oriented Christian. That's not going to happen. This is a work of the gospel in you, and we sang it in our first song. It is the power of God's word to change you. You be in the word continuously. You will return to God blessings always. You must get in his word. And you've got to go beyond reading it superficially. You've got to get to studying it. You've got to get a hunger for it. You've got to get a love for God's word. It will deeply dwell in your heart and you will begin to bless and praise. And your face will be radiant and you will not lose your confidence. But David, he about lost his confidence. So he knows what he's writing. Point number two. Why should we be full of gratitude? Well, look at verse six. This poor man cried. He's talking about himself. And the Lord heard him and saved him out of all his troubles. And I really like what Spurgeon once wrote, Charles Spurgeon. He who praises God for blessings will always have blessings for which to praise God. I have found that to be true in my life. I imagine you have as well. But, so there is likely a cynical flutter going through some of the minds in this room right now. I mean, here we go. We've got David. He's not yet the king of Israel. He's going to be, but he's going to have wealth. He's going to have fame. He's going to have power. He's going to have luxuries, right? He's got the silver spoon, the red carpet. And meanwhile, we've got people in our church 
who've had a really bad day recently. Some have had a really bad week. I know some that have had a really bad month, and I know a few who've had a really bad life, a very difficult life. And so it is quite possible that some of us are kind of a little cynical at this point, thinking, well, if David had my kind of trials and my kind of battles, he would understand how hard it is to bless God. Well, do you know out of what circumstance David wrote this psalm? You might have a title on the top of your psalm. Can I get you to read that for a moment? It probably reads something like this, Psalm 34 of David, when he changed his behavior before Abimelech. Who's Abimelech? What did he change his behavior? This is all about 1 Samuel chapter 21. Can I invite you to write that down? Go study that sometime. It starts in verse 10. David is fleeing Saul, the king of Israel, who is trying to kill him. And David flees to Gath, which is a Philistine city, now listen, and the hometown of the famous Goliath, whom David previously killed. He gets to Gath, trying to find protection from Saul, and everybody starts a buzz. This is David, whom it is sung about in Israel. Saul has killed his thousands, and David his ten thousands. He's here to kill our king. Abimelech, or Achish, is his name. And all of a sudden, David starts hearing these rumors and starts seeing the consternation and the concern rising up from the people, the Philistines of Gath, and he realizes my life is in danger. So here's what he does. He completely acts like a madman. He begins scratching the gates in the city of Gath. He begins slobbering down into his ear, into his beard hair, and it doesn't say it in the scriptures, but I'm sure he begins speaking gibberish, and all of a sudden the king, King Achish of Gath, says to uh, about David, get rid of him, get him out of our city, don't I have enough madmen here already? And David leaves when he should have been killed. He wrote this psalm out of that circumstance. His life was over in his eyes. And he doesn't give credit to his salvation, to acting like a madman and his acting ability. He gives credit to God. And he is blessing God in his, at, at all times, even when you're in a Philistine stronghold. they got five cities, he's in one of them. He's blessing the Lord because it's God that delivered him, not David's acting. David's life is spared in verse 7. He recognizes it's from God. The angel of the Lord encamps around those who fear him and delivers them. Listen, you got to write this down. The angel of the Lord in the Old Testament is almost always a reference to Jesus Christ. And Christian, this is a promise for you. It's a promise for me. Jesus encamps around those who fear him. Now stop there because that is just an awkward phrase in America. What does it mean to fear God? What's it mean when David said, fear him? Is that the terror fear that we've got to feel like God is poised with his finger over a cosmic smite button and the moment you do anything that makes him mad, he hits that button and calamity happens in your life? Is that what it means to fear God? That he's got the power to undo you? 
Well, he does have that power, but that's not what it means to fear God. What it means to fear God is that your heart is filled with an overwhelming sense of awe and respect for his character and his actions. It's a synonym for worship. We speak worship today. The Bible often said fear God. It means the same thing to his people. Didn't mean that to the nations that rejected him. There they had a terror fear. But for Israel and for the church and for Christians today, it means to worship God with a heart full of awe and respect. Here, Now listen to this. I'm going to fill it out. It's the last part of it. A heart full of awe and respect that captures all of your affections for him so that you can do nothing but bless him at all times and return praise to him and brag about what he has done for you. And the way this awe and this reverence grows. Now listen, I'm, I think you want to know, right? How do you grow in worship? How do you grow in the fear of God? Well, verse 8 says, Taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is the man who takes refuge in him. Now that really sounds odd if you just stop and think about it. I mean, this is sort of a bit cannibalistic sounding. How do you taste and see that God is good? You can't munch on him. What on earth does that mean? By the way, time out. When you come into phrases like this and you come into words like this, I know you're flesh and you're tired usually in the morning when you're reading the Bible. You know what? I'll, I'm just going to gloss over that, get to the good parts. You know, the parts that I can understand, the easy fruit on the tree that I can reach and falls into my hand. Listen, the best parts are the parts you got to go into the interior of the tree and you got to pull a little harder on them. You've got to stop and you've got to really learn what's it mean to taste and see that God is good. Well, Peter, Peter kind of talked like this in 1 Peter 2. Like newborn infants long for the, the pure spiritual milk, and that by it you may grow up into salvation, and if indeed you have tasted that the Lord is good. Here's what it means, and I'm going to give you an, an, a, an illustration. To taste means to test. It means to experience. Try them out. God's all right with this. Not test to say, God, you do what I want you to do or I'm not going to worship you. That's not what it means. It means put your weight gingerly on the ice and you're going to learn it's going to hold your weight. And then you're going to have more confidence. And pretty soon you're out in the middle of the pond ice skating rather than staying on the perimeter out of fear. It means to experiment. It means to try it out. And it's what a mom does when they take that baby bottle that they just put in the microwave to warm up the milk, and they pour a little of it on the inside of their arm to make sure it's not too hot. That's what it means to taste and see that the Lord is good. Test it out a little bit. You're going to get some pretty good confidence coming your way. Why? Because God's not going to fail you. And pretty soon, you're going to flee to him in refuge when your days are bad. When you're in that trial, bless the Lord. Praise him. Taste and see that he is good. Find refuge in him. Get on your knees. Yield all your life. Let boasting and bragging be to him. Your face will be radiant. You will not lose confidence. You'll know the refuge is there for you. And you'll be able to magnify the Lord. You'll be able to exalt him with other believers. You'll be able to seek him, verse 4. You'll be able to look to him, verse 5. You'll be able to cry out to him in your trouble, verse 6. And through all of this, he's going to prove his goodness to you. And you will learn to be taking refuge in him. 
See, this is one of the most stark psalms at growing in your faith that you're ever going to read. This is an amazing psalm. And it leads us to the third and final question that I want to answer. We've looked at when we should be full of gratitude at all times. We've looked at why we should be full of gratitude. But the third one is how. How can we be full of gratitude and blessing for the Lord? And look at verse 9. Oh, fear the Lord, you his saints, for those who fear him have no lack. The rest of this psalm, now look at me for a second. This is super important you get this. And I'm going to invite you at a later time to study this because we're not going to go verse by verse anymore in this psalm. But let me tell you what's going to happen. The rest of this psalm, David wages war on pride. And David wins the victory to become a man who will bless the Lord at all times and praise for God will be continually on his lips. If you want to know how you grow in blessing the Lord and praising him at all times, verses 10 through the rest is your key. He's going to give reason after reason to bless God and to praise him with gratitude. So many reasons. He's going to act like an attorney. He's going to win the case before the end of the psalm. And there's not going to be able to be an opposing view. It's going to be locked, nailed shut, a clear victory, and pride loses the battle. And gratitude fills the heart. And when gratitude fills the heart, it overflows in blessing and praise in all the church is impacted. But I'm going to fast forward you over a thousand years, 1,035 years to be a little more precise, to when Jesus Christ walked the earth. And I'd like to tell you how the Jewish people cultivated grateful hearts that blessed the Lord. You see, the Jews taught all their people that you pray three times a day, morning, Afternoon at the evening sacrifice between 3 and 5 o'clock. And evening, so three times a day. And one of their prayers, specifically in the morning, was called the Shema. That's Deuteronomy chapter 6. Hear, O Israel, our God is one. And it goes on a little bit more. They memorized that. But they had another prayer, and it goes by three different names. The easiest one that I'm going to refer to the rest of this message is called the Eighteen. The 18. The number 18. It went by two other names, the Amidah and the Shimone Ezra. All right, we're going to call it the 18. It's just easier to say. And the 18 was a collection of prayers that were all blessings to God. And they had all of their people memorize them. Now watch this as we begin to as I begin to show you how the rabbis and how they taught their people to praise and bless their God. See, the 18 were a, was a collection of benedictions. Now, just stop for a second, okay? Think dictionary. I mean, what is benediction? 
dictionary, a collection of words. A benediction is, diction is words, bene is good. So this is, these, these are prayers of good words about God. That's simply what benedictions means. When you give a benediction, when one of us pastors do that, we're ending the sermon usually or at a funeral or a wedding, we're giving a good word or good words about God. That's a blessing. So benedictions are blessings. And they taught these benedictions in the 18, all these prayers about praising God. So for times of healing, here's what they would pray. This is the 18, blessed are you, O Lord, the healer of sick. For forgiveness, when you've sinned and you came back to God and he cleansed you, he forgave you, they would pray, blessed are you, O Lord, who is merciful and ready to forgive. When God gave you wisdom about a matter in life, or he gave you discernment, or he gave you knowledge, they would pray, blessed are you, O Lord, the gracious giver of knowledge. Now, I could go on because it goes on over and over, but for every part of life, the 18 covered a prayer because they were learning what David taught in Psalm 34. I will bless the Lord at all times. See, the Jewish people understood that gratitude does not come when you get more things of the world. It comes when you taste the goodness of God and you experience his presence. When you, when you taste the goodness of God, you experience his presence. It fills your heart to overflow in praise and blessing and benediction. These prayers were the conduit to be able to Catch the overflow and direct them to God. Now listen to this. The rabbis taught that you shouldn't pray the 18 on the back of a donkey. They forbid it. Because being up high can make you feel proud and self-sufficient. And blessing God is a war on pride. In fact, the 18 or the Amidah or the Shimone Ezra... That means literally interpreted standing. These were prayers that you couldn't do sitting down. You couldn't do lying down. You couldn't do on the back of a donkey. You must always do standing. You must be standing in the presence of God. Your feet must be planted and spread is how they taught it. And then you direct your praise to God and your blessings to him. See, they would gather at the temple to pray the 18 as it served to remind them of God's presence. But if you were out of Israel, if you're in another country, by the way, this is still re relevant today. If you're out of the country, then you just face Israel and you pray the prayers. If you're in Israel, then you've got to face toward the temple and you pray the prayers. If you don't know where you are, for instance, you're on a ship and you don't know where Israel is and what direction, then the rabbi is taught, in that case, you pray the prayer sincerely from your heart. It will find its way to God's presence in Jerusalem. Now, we today know that God does not live in a temple built by human hands. He lives in the temple, he lives in us through the Holy Spirit, but we have access to the Father through Jesus, the living curtain. So when you pray and you direct your, your benedictions and your blessings to God, and you are focusing on God. Now, sometimes that means you got to turn off the TV. That means you shouldn't really always be having the radio on in your car. Please learn to go in silence. 
This generation coming up does not understand silence. They think it's a threat to their lives. It is not a threat. These are moments of potential glory in God. This is where your praise can inhabit. It's the silence that puts God as the only audience in your heart and your mind. Come on, you've got to love silence. Gratitude, however, for the Jewish people went way beyond the 18. You see, they would not eat until they paused and remembered that their meal was a gift from God. One rabbi said this, a man must not taste anything until he has blessed it. But they wouldn't so much bless the food, but they would bless the one who gave it to them. So a Jewish blessing at a mealtime is focused to God. God, thank you. I bless you for being the giver of all good things. In fact, that's what Psalm 24 says. The earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof, the world and those who dwell therein. Everything, it means, everything is a gift from God. Even your meal. So serious to the Jews was it to bless God for the meal that, listen to this, if they forgot... They would go back to where they ate and thank him so they wouldn't forget the next time. Now, if you'd practice that today, let's say you're over in Peaburg and you're eating at Chick-fil-A and you forget to pray and, and uh, you go to leave and you're just about to exit that parking lot and there you remember if you were doing what they did, there you remember, I forgot to bless God for the food. They would turn around I'm not kidding. They would go back to the table. If people were there, they would politely say, would you please get up for a moment? They would sit down. They would pray and bless God for the food. Then they would get up and leave. That's what they would do. That's what they taught. So serious was it to bless God for even our meals. In fact, arguments took place between rabbis debating how much time you actually had to return to the spot to bless God. If you forget, here's how they settled the argument. You've got as much time as it takes before that food is digested out of your body. That was their answer. And that was their practice. They were taught to bless God. Listen, now think of this, because I am positive none of us do this. They were taught to bless God for each item of food that they ate in a meal. They would bless God for the bread. And then when the figs were were served, they would bless God for the figs. And then when the wine came, they would bless God for the wine. This is why, really, at the Last Supper, you see God, you see Jesus do two prayers of blessing, one for the bread and then another one for the wine. That was the custom for the Jews. They blessed God for each part of their meal. We're lucky if we remember to bless God before the meal but we can learn how to do it. But their gratitude even extended to a lamp. They would bless God who brought light from darkness when they would light that oil lamp in their home. They would bless God when they see a comet streaking in the night sky. They would stand on the edge of the Mediterranean Sea and they would bless God. And when it rained, they would bless God because there they remember the scriptures that God's mercy falls on the just and the unjust just like his rain. You see, disciples stayed 
bunched up with their rabbi. If you see, if you were alive in first century and you see a rabbi walking along the road, this would be true of Jesus, which is how they were overhearing each other's conversations. They were walking tightly together. The disciples would do that because they never knew when their rabbi would utter a blessing. And they wanted to learn how to bless God the same way as their rabbi. They had, believe it or not, a blessing that one rabbi gave for even going to the bathroom. I'll read it. Blessed are you, O Lord, who has formed man in wisdom and created in him many orifices and many cavities. Well, if you've ever not had one of your orifices working and it begins to work, you'll know why they bless God. But like any religious activity, prayers of blessing became for many of the Jews what they considered a way to make themselves righteous. That's what happened. We don't bless God because in blessing God we make ourselves righteous. We bless God to proclaim his righteousness. Romans clearly says, for Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. The only way that you or I could be made righteous is faith in Jesus who died and was raised for us to forgive us of our sins and to give us a relationship with his Father. See, righteousness can only come through Christ But a grateful heart will pour out constant good words toward God for all things and in all time. So let me ask you as we get ready to close. Are you tasting and seeing that God is good to you? Let God's praise be continually on your lips. Make this week of thanksgiving a brand new way of life for you. Let the gospel have its way and help you bless him at all times. And let me close for a moment by going back to the Washington Monument. This is very, very interesting, and I just learned this. Since the capstone is 554 feet high and a few inches, seven inches, the National Park Service created a replica of it. If you've been in the Washington Monument, you've seen it. It's on display for all the visitors to see. It's got a plaque next to it, except here's what they did in 2007. They put the, the, the display of the capstone has four sides to it. They put the part, the side with Laos Deo completely against the wall and you were utterly unable to see it. And then they put a plaque which was a facsimile of the original plaque except they omitted the entire last sentence on it which talked about Laos Deo and praise be to our God. They completely took it out of that. Such an outcry went up that they apologized almost immediately and worked to get it reinstated. But if that's not a symptom of our nation, I don't know what is. It must not be a symptom of our church. We must learn to bless the Lord at all times and let his praise be continually on our lips. We take a knee and yield everything to him and we boast about our God and we taste and see that he is good and we magnify and make great his name and we pull example after example of his faithfulness and his goodness and his love to fortify the confidence so that we will never ever lose the radiance and we will find our way to his refuge 
and we'll be the people of God that amaze the world by who died for us. Amen? Let's learn to be that. Let this week be a week of thanksgiving for the rest of your life. Let's pray.